Good morning, Moore Tribe. It's Easter morning, and we wish we could be with you all celebrating. We can't wait to be together again soon. Enjoy this day with your family, and let's take time to remember what the Lord has done for us. We will be posting more on all of our social media and would love for you to follow, watch, and comment to keep us all connected. Lastly, we want to ask you to please give online to support your church. We couldn't do any of this without you. We appreciate your support, your prayers, and the time you've taken to be with us right now. Well, good morning, church. Happy Resurrection Day. Um, Usually I'm imagining seeing you, but uh, we've had someone come in here and put your happy faces into your seats. Well, you're not really in your real seats. Many of you are sitting in the wrong places, but some of you are sitting in the right places. So it's still not very realistic because you're all smiling. I mean, you all look really happy. And so that's not the way it always is when you're standing up here. So, but anyway, it's good to see you. And uh, it really does make me smile to look out there and see you. We're going to talk about the resurrection today, of course, um, and what it means, not just for what it meant with Jesus, but what it means for us personally and what it means for us today. And then at the end of the service, we're going to share corporate communion together. So I just wanted to tell you that right up front so that if you don't uh, have elements in front of you, it gives you a little time to get a little bit of bread, maybe some grape juice. If you don't have those two items, it really doesn't matter as long as you have something that you can partake uh, the, the uh, body and the blood of our Lord with, uh, just as long as you do it in faith and, uh, you know, you do it for the right reasons. So let's pray together and right before we get started here and get into God's Word. So God, I just pray right now over this uh, Resurrection Day service, over this Easter service, and I ask God that you would just breathe on it, that your Spirit would be here, God, to teach us your Word, that your Spirit would be here to minister and that all the people, God, that are watching uh, online or on the television, I ask, Lord, that your spirit would be touching them even right now. I pray for those, God, that are hurting. I pray for relief. Uh, and, and, God, that if they're in pain, that you would just completely relieve that pain right now. I pray, God, for those that are sick. I ask, God, that your healing hand would touch them wherever they are and bring healing to their body. I pray for the lonely. I pray for the oppressed. I pray for the de- depressed, God. And I ask, Lord, that you'd lift their spirits and you would, you would just let them feel the joy of the Lord in their heart and in their home. And we thank you, God, for this day and for what it means. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to continue to look at the book of James um, because we've been going through James a little bit. And James is a, an interesting book. It was written by James, the, the, the brother of our Lord. He was the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, he wrote this book as a practical guide for how to get by in times of trial. Uh, you know, they were going through a tough trial. This was written in probably the second century, and the church was really being persecuted by the Roman Empire. Uh, people were losing jobs. It, just being Christian would be uh, reason enough to lose your job. Some businesses were being closed because they were Christians that owned them. Um, there was physical violence. It was like open season on anybody that claimed the name of Jesus, and some were even being martyred. Uh, It was a very difficult time. They were going through a time that was just so much worse than anything that we have ever been through. Now, I know there's people all over the world that are being persecuted, and some are being martyred. But here in America, you know, we've gone through some stuff. Uh, We go go through some humiliation and some uh, 
you know, marginalizing of, you know, the secular world mar marginalizes the church. But for the most part, we really don't know what it was like to go through intense persecution. And what we're going through right now, though it's bad, it just doesn't even compare to what some other Christians, some other children of God have gone through through the years. Well, it was at this time that James wrote this book in the second century when they were being so heavily persecuted that the symbol for Christianity uh, became the ichthys. I think I'm saying that right, the Greek word. Uh, you know the symbol. It's, it's like a fish. It's two arcs that come together like that, and it makes a fish. And that was the symbol for Christianity in the first probably two, three hundred years. And the reason they didn't use a cross is because it was offensive to Christians to use a cross. No one would have thought of using a cross to uh, be a symbol for Christianity because it was the sign of the ultimate uh, uh, sadness of uh, Jesus' death. They looked more for the resurrected Christ than they did for the Christ that was on the cross. This fish symbol, uh, it's interesting, came out of this time of persecution because according to ancient stories, what they would do is that they were so persecuted that when they would run into someone that they didn't know and they began to have a conversation, they actually would sometimes make one of those arcs in the dirt and the other person would make the ark in the dirt and they would know that they're both Christian and it was safe to talk about their faith. They were so heavily persecuted, they had to have almost a little secret sign language to be able to communicate. The reason it's an ichthys or a fish symbol is because it's an acronym. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. In the Greek, when you take those first letters of those words, it spelled out the ichthys or the symbol for the profile of a fish. Well, they were under intense persecution. And God's people do go through difficult seasons, just like we're going through this one. Uh, it's just we're not exempt. I mean, if you think you're exempt from bad times, read Lamentations. Man, it, it, God's children have gone through some tough stuff. But James wrote this book as a, being a practical guide, not just to get through hard times, but to be an overcomer. He's saying, you know, it's one thing just to endure and tough it out and make it through, but it's another thing to actually grow through times of intense trial. And that's what he's talking about in this book. We've been looking, about it, looking at it for several weeks. You know, at first he talked about consider it all joy. And we talked about last week the power of joy, how the joy of the Lord is actually our strength to help us get through these times. And then he goes on in James chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, and he begins to talk about something else. And I'm going to read that to you now. If any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one that doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So James says next, right off the bat, after we consider it all joy, that we get the proper perspective for going through the hardship that we're going through, he said you're going to need wisdom to get through this trial. To be an overcomer in the trial, you're going to have to have wisdom. Wisdom, it's the Greek word Sophia. So many people have that as their name. And, and it literally means the use of knowledge. It's, it's, in my mind, it's like knowing what to do and how to do it. He said, you're going to need to know what to do, and then you're going to know how, you need to know how to do it. And that's what wisdom is. But he said, there's a, there's a uh, stipulation here. To receive wisdom from God, who he says gives liberally to all that ask, he said, he doesn't give it to people 
that don't believe or that are in doubt. He says they're double-minded. Sometimes when we read that kind of stuff, we start thinking, oh, I've got to just be single-minded and be believing real hard and, you know, just trying so hard not to let any double-mindedness come in. And it almost makes it worse. When we try not to think of something, it's like we think of it immediately. And he says, you must believe and not doubt. And my question immediately is, what must we believe, God? And what must we not doubt for you to just open up heaven and pour wisdom out? Well, he tells us. The book of James, the, the first chapter of James, is actually a continuous thought uh, from, from verse 1 all the way through verse 18. And it wouldn't hurt if you had a Bible, you open it up and you could look there with me that there's a lot of things it says from verse 1 all the way through 18, but we're going to focus primarily on verse 17 and then back up and talk about a few of the verses that are in the middle. Because he tells us whenever he says, don't doubt, and he says, you, you must believe. What's he, what's he saying we must believe? Well, let's look at verse 17, actually 16 and 17. In 16, it says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Stop right there. He's saying there is a tendency for us as Christians to be deceived. Uh, about what? Well, he's about to tell us. He said, don't be deceived. And then he goes into verse 17. He said, whatever is good and whatever is a perfect gift coming down to us from God, our Father who created all the lights in heaven, he never changes or casts a shifting shadow. So here's what he's saying in verses 16 and 17. He's saying the thing that you must not doubt and the thing that we must believe and to hang on to through any times of trial is that God is good. And he gives good things, only good things. And he's only good. He says there's no shadow there. There's no dark side to God. You don't, you don't get to know God and then, you know, one day you kind of realize he's an evil trickster or he's going to put something on us just to punish us or to be mean to us. He says, you've got to get that thoughts out of your mind. You have to eliminate those doubts and those, those double-mindedness. You have to, when you go through trial, you have to believe God is good and he only gives good gifts. He doesn't change. No matter how hard life gets for us, no matter what we're going through, we can't ever be double-minded about the goodness of God. You know, why are we tempted sometimes to doubt God? Why are we tempted sometimes to, you know, actually do the wrong thing in the time of trial? And if we back up a little bit right before these verses and look at verses 13 through 15, that's exactly what James is talking about. He says sometimes when you go through intense trial, hardship, when you go through difficult times, you're going to be tempted. I mean, you're going to be tempted to doubt God. You're going to be tempted to doubt his goodness. And also, you're going to be tempted to do some things maybe that you wouldn't normally do. I said it last week, you know, people are like tea bags. When you put them in hot water, you find out what's inside. And I think sometimes when we go through hard times, when we get into the hot water, so to speak, some things start to come out. We're tempted to do some things that we know that we shouldn't do. It's almost like the, the, the hardship or the thing that we're going to creates an excuse for us to fall back into old patterns and old ways. James 13 through 15, he says this, when you're tempted, nobody should say, God's tempting me. You see, we have to push that doubt off the, we have to push that off the table. God's good. He's not putting something on us, you know, just to see what we'll do. He's not doing that. He's not evil. He's good. And it's not God that's tempting us. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. 
He just doesn't do that. But each one of us is tempted when we're dragged away by our own evil desire and enticed. And then after that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. He's showing us a progression of what can actually take us out. And that is, you know, when we give in to our temptations in times of trial. You know, God's not the author of temptation. And he's certainly not the author of any temptation to blame God for the difficulty. You know, I don't know if you know this, but there's so many well-meaning Christians, and they'll sit there and say, well, this is punishment from God. God has looked at the earth, and there's so much evil. He's judging the earth, and he's bringing this punishment to get our attention. I just want you to know that when you do that, you're tempting others to believe that God has a dark side, that God's going to put something on humanity that he promised he would never do again way back in Genesis when Noah got out of the, the uh, ark and he gave a rainbow in the sky. He knows that we have evil hearts. And he said, I'm never going to destroy the earth again. He came up with a different plan, and that plan was Jesus. Well, some people say, you know, well, he may not be judging the earth, but God could end it. Why is he allowing this? And suddenly what you're doing is you're temp you're 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 actually speaking something that's putting the blame back on God again. It's like, oh, well, God could end this tomorrow, and, and he could. But there's no reason to bring God into that equation. These bad things are not a gift from God. They're not from God. God is only good, and he only gives good gifts. That's very difficult sometimes to hang on to when we don't see good things around us. That's why James says, you've got to have no doubt. You've got to believe these things, that God is the one that's here to help us through this. He's the one that's here to help us through this. You know, this is Resurrection Day. It's Easter. And Easter's a great time. But it's not just about Jesus' resurrection. It's about our resurrection as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Now, when you read that, it sounds like a very negative statement, actually, and, and it's kind of stated that way. But if you look at it in a positive spin, it says that, you know, if we say Christ has been raised, and that's a non-negotiable for Christians, we have no doubt about that. You know, if, if we don't believe that Jesus is resurrected and he's sitting at the right hand of God and he's for us, then we're pretty much in a dark place to start with. But he has been raised. So our faith is powerful. It is meaningful. And guess what? Our sins are gone. We're not in them anymore. Well, when he says that you're, you're, you're not in your sin, what he's saying is you're, you're not affected by the sin. Jesus took all of that sin on himself. We know that. And when he was buried in that tomb, he was buried with our sin. But when he resurrected, he left the sin in that grave. He didn't bring it with him. He didn't, get it, he didn't take it with him. It's buried in that grave forever. That resurrection's a fact. And it's a fact that Jesus took our sin. But I just want you to see something else. In Romans 6, 4 through 7, we see something else. It says that we also, we Christians, we also died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may have, we also have been raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father. And we have new lives. For we know that our old self was crucified with him 
so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Did you get that? Did you get that? We know Jesus rose from the grave. I mean, all of us know that. It's an absolute fact. But do you know that you have been also? Do you know that when you went through the baptism waters up here, that, that you went through there, that you were buried with Christ in baptism, and that your, your sin, your old life, everything was buried, and when you resurrected, it was all left in the grave? Those are things we have to hang on to. We have to know that we are his special possession, that we are his special children that he took all of his sin on our, all of our sin on himself, and then when we identify with that death, we also rid ourselves of that sin. Not only of the penalty of sin, which is the punishment of hell, but we rid, we're rid of the power of sin. It has no power over us anymore. So when we look at that and we go back to what James was saying about temptation, he's saying that whenever we're tempted in these times of trial, and sometimes we're tempted to do something that we know we shouldn't be doing. It's almost like our old coping mechanisms sometimes come back into being whenever we're in these times of trial. I've had several people tell me that they're having a difficult time by staying at home so much and not having any interaction, and they're, they're starting to feel the effect of that isolation. Some people have even begun to cope with that the way that they did uh, before they even were born again. Some people go to alcohol, maybe they drink too much. Some people escape through pornography, and some people just want to sleep it away. They stay in bed more than they should, and they're just sleeping more than they should because it's the old coping mechanisms we're tempted to go back to whenever we have these times of trial. Some people do drugs, they just get high, they just escape. And some people, they just shop, their, shop themselves into, uh, you know, into debt. Whatever it is. You know, God just wants us to know that we actually are free from the power of all of that. That we must hang on to the fact that we have been born again and we have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. It was God that came in, into our life to set us free from all that type of thing, regardless of the trial we're going through. Yes, resurrection's a fact for Jesus, and it is also a fact for us. We left our sin in the grave, and it has no more power and no more penalty. Therefore, anyone that comes to you in a time of trial and says, oh, this is God punishing you, you know, the church, or this is God judging the world, I just want you to ask them a question. Did Jesus' death on the cross not do enough? Romans 8.1 says this, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Man, that's a big statement. No condemnation. Do you know why there's no condemnation? Because Jesus took it all. He took all the sin. He took all the condemnation. He took the wrath of God. He took the judgment of God. He took it to the grave and he resurrected without it. Therefore, when we come into Christ, there's none left. It's all gone. He took it all in himself so that we wouldn't have to take any of it. And yes, he did do enough. Yes, he did suffer enough when he was on the cross and he said, it's finished. It really was finished. Some would say, well, maybe Jesus has put out with us. Maybe because he's given us such a great gift and we've, we've slipped back into old patterns. Maybe we're doing things we know we shouldn't be doing. 
He said, maybe Jesus is the one that's going to condemn us. Well, look at Romans 8, 34. It said, who's going to condemn you? Christ? Jesus is going to condemn you? He's the one that died. And furthermore, he's risen. He's even at the right hand of God. And listen to this, making intercession for us. Not only is he not condemning us, he's making intercession for us. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when Jesus showed up after his resurrection, he still had holes in his hands. He still had a hole in his side. He still bore the marks of a crucifixion that took sin on himself. And when he ascended, he had those marks. So I'm assuming, as he's at the right hand of the Father, that those marks are still there. And those marks are a witness. They're a testimony of the price being paid in full. And so anytime we sin, 1 John 2, 1, anytime we sin, we have an advocate in heaven. He makes intercession to us, for us, to the Father, and he says, no, it was finished on the cross. He did more than enough. So with that thought in mind, I thought it was a beautiful time in this message for us to stop and to take communion together. So if you'll get the elements there in your home and uh, you'll gather those, uh, I have this unleavened bread left over from the Passover that we celebrated last Wednesday night. And, uh, you know, just take the bread and break it because it signifies the broken body. Jesus said, this is my body that he gives to us. And the body was broken so that our bodies wouldn't have to. We said it Wednesday night, all of these stripes, he was beaten so that we wouldn't have to be. It was more than enough. And so as we partake of this body, he said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have a part of me. And, he, and when we, we do this, I like, to, I like to think of it as we are what we eat. And so as we take this body in faith, um, just remember that he was tortured and died for you. And now we take this cup and we take this blood and we take this blood in remembrance of our Savior. His blood was spilt and it was spilt so that we could be white as snow. You know, there's no greater gift in the world than the gift of salvation. There's no greater gift in the world than for, you know, Jesus to wipe away your sins. It makes you feel so light and so new and so just, I don't know just overwhelmed with praise. And so as you take this cup, do it in remembrance that Jesus paid a high price for our salvation. Father, we thank you for this communion. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus and what he did for us. And God, let us be mindful always that the price was paid in full 100%. Never let us doubt, God, that it was enough. Never let us feel like, God, we've got to do more to be able to be saved. Let us rest in the fact that we are who you say we are with the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, the story of Jesus did not end on the cross. And even though we just took these elements and remembering what he did on his way to the cross and, and then when he was hanging on that cross... His story didn't end there. And that's why the first century church 
did not use the cross as a symbol. They didn't want to remember the cross. They wanted to remember the resurrection. And so that's what we should do as well. Our story doesn't end here either. We are born again and because of what Jesus did on the cross. But then we're filled with God's spirit and we are to walk in newness of life. Our story doesn't end at the cross. And it's, it should be a testimony every day of the greatness of God. I love Psalm 16, and we're going to end with this scripture. It, in Psalm 16, 9 through 11, I just want to go to the middle. I have it underlined there. And this, this is about resurrection. In verse 10, it says, You will not abandon me to experience death and the grave or leave me to rot alone. What he's talking about there is the resurrection that we will all experience. David was writing this psalm, and he was writing it looking forward to saying, God, I know that I'm not going to rot in the grave alone. I know that I'm not even going to experience death because I believe in you, and you're not going to abandon me to experience that death. And I just want to say, this is a great promise for every child of God, that God will not abandon us to even endure death. Jesus said, if you... If you eat my body and drink my blood, you will never die. That's what he said in John 6. And that's what he means. We'll never experience death. Oh, our bodies are decaying day by day. These, these bodies were dying day by day. But our inner man, it's being renewed every day. And so he will not abandon us to experience death of the grave, and he will not leave us to rot alone. Praise God. But I like these verses that are on either side of this because he's going to now explain what it means to live in a resurrected life. It says, this is a good life. My heart is glad, my soul is full of joy, and my body is at rest. Who could want for more? That's awesome. That's the way God, that's the way we should feel every time we remember our standing before God. A glad heart that it's full of joy, and we should be at perfect rest because we know that God's got this thing. What more could we ask for? I know that we're going through a hard time. I know this is a difficult season. But I just want to say, it, it, it shouldn't matter what seasons we go through. These truths are big enough to carry us on into joy no matter what we're going through here on earth. And then down in verse 11. Instead, you direct me on the path that leads to a beautiful life. As I walk with you, the pleasures are never ending, and I know true joy and contentment. Praise God. That's the way we should be. These verses are not contingent upon anything except the resurrection. Nothing except the resurrection. So regardless of what's going on in this world, no matter the trial, God never changes. He's always good. He gives good gifts to his children. And that's just a promise that we can hang on to in the midst of this trial. So if you would, <clears throat> as we minister today, I just want to pray for you to receive the wisdom that God says we need during this time. I hope that this message today has caused you to, to lock down some beliefs that you will not allow yourself to doubt God's goodness, that you'll lock down the beliefs about the resurrection and what that means, not only for Jesus, but what that really means for each one of you, that we would lock those beliefs and they would become ironclad. And so that when we go to the Father, we are not double-minded, we are absolutely hanging on to his goodness that he wants to pour out wisdom so that we'll know what to do and how to do it during this time of trial. We don't know how long it will last, but it shouldn't matter because the truth of who we are, the truth of what we've been promised by God does not change. 
So let's pray together. Father, we come to you and humbly bend our knee, God. We just say to you that we need your wisdom. Father, we know that you give wisdom, then you give it liberally to those that ask. And so, God, we as your church come this morning and say, Lord, pour out your wisdom upon us. Teach us to navigate through this time, this trial. Just teach us, God, to do the right thing at the right time. God, I pray for all of those out there that are listening to me that the temptation's gotten to them and they've fallen back into some old coping method mechanisms. I pray over them, God, that the power of that sin in their life would be broken, that, Lord, you would remove that hook from them and that they would no longer have to feel like they've got to walk in those old ways. So, God, we're praying for a resurrected life to be released over them and that they would walk in newness of life and they would walk above all of that and not be drugged back down into the mire. I thank you, God, for this morning together. We thank you for Easter and for resurrection, and we just praise the name of Jesus. Amen, amen. Thank you, church. See you next week. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope to be reunited with you all very soon. God, we thank you for this time. Lord, I just pray that you would bless it. God, we want to bless your name. And God, we thank you for the amazing sacrifice of your life that you gave for us. And God, I thank you that you are alive, that you rose from the grave, that death did not defeat you. God, this is what we remember today. This is why we come to you today, God, and we say thank you. Thank you for covering us, for protecting us, God. God, we trust you to do that. And we know that you love us, and we thank you for that love. And we just want to honor you right now and worship you. Just let our hearts be wide open, God, and just let your presence just be everywhere this is streaming. God, I know that you're always with us and I just pray that we would just feel it more right now than we felt it. And God, just lift off the burden of, of anything that the enemy has tried to bring over people in this time of being home and being alone and feeling isolated or fearful or anything, God. This is what we come to you for. You bring us peace and you bring us home. We love you.
Turn it for good. 